So let's talk tonight about uh, a portrait of Christology, okay? So uh, we're not going to do a complete Christology tonight. Uh, we're actually doing it from a portrait of Christology from uh, Isaiah, and particularly the, uh, the prophecy that we preached today, we'll teach tonight. And, uh, you know, Christology is basically a study of Christ. Uh, we'll, that's, we'll see that here in a little bit, but... Uh, uh, you know, but before we even get into it, you know, why study Old Testament prophecy? Why, why even do that? Why should we study Old Testament prophecy? And I think the reason, there are many, many reasons. I mean, some of you know there's a, a, a very popular uh, pastor whose uh, shtick is leadership, and uh, we're almost identically the same age, and he's made the comment that we should be unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament, which is really a sad comment, uh, and really unnecessary because all Scripture is inspired by God, right? And all Scripture is profitable uh, for teaching and proof and correction and training and righteousness. That means all Scripture is good for teaching. All Scripture is good for correcting. All Scripture is good for rebuking and uh, correction and instruction and righteousness. Uh, so the, you know, the man of God can be equipped and uh, you know, ready for every good work and such. All scripture, Old Testament and new. And while we are living in the New Testament era, and I do think from a default perspective, from a preaching perspective, you should really morph toward the New Testament as often as you can. But preach the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul said, Acts 20, 27, right? I, I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And uh, so that's why we... Preach from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. You don't really understand the New Testament, really, unless you have that foundational element of the Old Testament. That's why you should have a good walkthrough in your mind. You should be able to understand basically the basic outline of the Bible, the way it unpacks itself. And the prophecies, I mean, are they not the greatest inspirations to us? The prophecies of Jesus I alluded to this morning, the 300 plus, they all were complete in the life death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Now, there are many other prophecies yet are, are foretold, yet to come to pass, and it's the fact that these other ones all came to pass that sta it stands to reason that we should believe the other ones, the ones yet to come to pass, will come to pass, right? And so there are many, many reasons to study prophecy, but, uh, and we got to know that God knows what he's up to, right? He's putting things together. Uh, and this comes out in, their, in Isaiah chapter 53 as well. I remember, I was looking over my notes, and I had a stack, a stack of notes on this prophetic passage that go way back. In fact, uh, in fact here's a little note I have. Uh, this is Daniel, our son, who's leading a salt company in, uh, of DMAC. He said this to me, and you can, you can imagine this was not just the other day. He said, Daddy, why did you turn off the TV after Jesus said, forgive them, for I do not know what I'm doing? He obviously misunderstood what he had heard when he was a little boy. And I, I wrote that down here because when you read this, you get the idea that God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's putting all this together. And, of course, this prophecy here is predicted, um, you know, again, 700 years before Jesus even came. So if, uh, if you want to study uh, the death uh, Christ's death from the crowd's perspective, okay? You want to go to the Gospels because you get 
the human witness perspective of the cross, all right? If you want to study the cross from Jesus' perspective, then you go to Psalm 22. Because the Gospels are, uh, uh, you know, you're looking at the cross, and in Psalm 22, you're looking from the cross. And it's, a, it's his own testimony. And it's a powerful testimony of that. We don't have the time to get into it, but just as a thought. If you want to study Christ's death from a theologian's perspective, this is where you ought to go right here. We're there. We are there. This is a theological passage, if there ever was one, and a bit of a Christology of the Lord Jesus, okay? A Christology is just a study of Christ, all right? And uh, so, what are some of the aspects? I would ask you this question. What are some of the aspects of the theological aspects of Jesus, his life, his death, that are found in this passage of Scripture? What are some of them? Shout them out. Shout them out. This is a class for crying out loud. Give me a couple of theological statements. Substitution. substitution. We talked about that this morning. So substitution is in there. Very good. What else? Even though the word wasn't used, the theology is. What else? What else do we see in here? Propitiation. Say that again. Propitiation. We mentioned that again. That's, we, we're, we'll get to that at the very end. The, that, you know, th that the father would see the travail of the soul of his son and be satisfied. Okay? What else? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's certainly in there. We mentioned it. His humanity. I mean, wow, that's full-on display, isn't it? The hypostatic union is alluded to here. The hypostatic union is, 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 uh, is deity and perfect humanity that are united together forever. That's Jesus, okay? He is the God-man. We talk about that much at Christmas time. That's, just, that's alluded to here. His condescension. All right? That whole Philippians 2, laying aside uh, this, you know, of his, uh, you know, the independent use of some of his attributes some of the time. It's all kind of indicated here. Justification, as we'll see, is mentioned in this passage. His resurrection is alluded to in this passage. And probably a few others, just to name a few. Okay, so uh, just a bit of a, we're going to look at from a teaching perspective here, okay, um, uh, tonight, instead of a preaching perspective. So he came as a servant. That's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus came as a servant, okay? Um, and uh, can you think of a passage of Scripture? He's called the servant here, by the way. And you see that in chapter 52 and uh, verse 13. Behold, my servant. This is called, uh, this is called uh, the fourth of the servant songs. And all, even the Jews recognize this is a messianic. The servant is the Messiah, and he's called servant. In fact, the word means slave, just like the New Testament word. It's a Hebrew word, but it means slave. But the slave don't, we have such an Americanized concept of slavery. Uh, the, the, the idea in the word servant is one who is owned. That's, you know. So, did Jesus come to be a servant? He said it. He said that, didn't he? The Son of Man did not come to what? To what? To be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Of course, he demonstrated that in John chapter 13, just before he died, right? When he 
got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples, and even Peter said, not me. Well, if you don't, yeah, you're not going to let me do this. You got nothing to do with me. Oh, then, you know, give me a full scrub down, Jesus. And that's when Jesus said, look, you know, yeah, look, if you've had the full bath, you just need to wash your feet. It's a beautiful picture of confession and repentance. And on, you, the Christian doesn't have to get saved all over again. When he sins, you just need to go and wash your feet. But he demonstrated being a servant at that time. Uh, he came as a servant. This passage is teaching that. And uh, uh, also, he came as a sufferer. And we really covered that. Not extensively, but we're going to get into it a little bit more tonight. Verses 3 and 4, once again, where we're told he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. And uh, was it a little bit of a... A revelation to some of you that this is actually was actually talking about his life, not his death at this point. I'm thinking it was. I got that sense anyway. It, it was a revelation to me when I studied it, so yeah. Uh, he suffered in life. I, I don't think we should think of him. I think, I think Jesus was joyful. I think he laughed. I think he enjoyed life. But just imagine as he, as he, when he was 30, all we really have is from 30 to 33, and during that time he is uh, just the pressures of what he is, are mounting about what he was going to do and taking on all of our sins. He came as a sacrifice, and I want to spend a little time on this because we really didn't break it down. And I want you to look particularly at verses 4 through 6 and look at those words. This is a word study right here, okay, in these few verses. Uh, but let me just read it again. Uh, he, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Now, remember, this is the Jewish mindset saying, this, we're, we figured he was getting what he deserved. And he was smitten, he was afflicted. Uh, by the way, the word stricken there, it denotes one who is violently struck by God. That's what the word means. And the word smitten speaks of a, a divinely mandated plague. That's what the word smitten means. It's, it's got a divine connotation to it. The word afflicted. That word afflicted speaks of one heavily laden with a burden. And this, is, this, this, this gives you a word study on, on the meaning of him being our sin, what? Bearer, the one who carries your sin, who takes your sin upon himself, who absorbs uh, the wrath of God. So it's, it's implied there in that word afflicted. Uh, the word pierced, some of your Bibles say wounded, it, and I think the ESV's got it right. It means to be, literally means to be pierced through. So uh, this isn't just uh, a poke. This was, is clearly alluding to the nails in his hands and his feet and the crucifixion. Uh, the word bruised there, some of your Bibles say bruised. He was bruised. See that there? Wind keeps blowing this thing over here. Breeze does, that is. Uh, okay, yeah. He was crushed. He was pierced for our transgression. And he was crushed for our iniquities. That is what the word means. It means, uh, it, it pictures grapes being crushed. You don't drink grapes. You drink grape gr juice only after it's crushed. 
And this is, a, this, is a, this is an allusion to Gethsemane, the place of the oil press, remember? Where he sweat great drops of blood. This is all pictured here in this crushing that, uh, that the text here is bringing out. In verse uh, 5 is where I'm looking here. Uh, the wounds referred to are the stripes, but with his wounds we are healed. Some of your Bibles say stripes. That, that the Hebrew word means a blow that cuts deep. And actually, uh, it's singular in the, in the Hebrew, so it's not talking about lots. This is not talking about the flogging or the scourging. It's talking about the piercing. It's talking about um, the death blow uh, that, the, that the, the cross itself uh, brought about. So he came as a servant. He came as a sufferer. He came as a sacrifice to be a sacrifice. And he came as a substitute. And this is where we really took our time, and rightly so, this morning. Can you name some of the terms? Can you name, look at the text, and I'm looking particularly at verses 4 and 5, and really all the way, no, actually really 4 through the rest of the text. And if you haven't read this on your own, you'll, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of you have, there are many terms, there are many substitutional terms in this text, many. So see if you can name a couple, and just shout them out. Beginning in verse 4, shout them out. I'm looking at one word in verse 4. Our, okay, so yeah, so but he, I'm, okay, but he has born our. Okay, that's a term of substitution, right? What's another one? Carried our sorrows, what else? Wounded for. What else? We've, seen, we've already looked at some of these. Crushed for. There's that substitutionary term. Upon him chastisement. With his wounds, stripes, he, we are healed. Verse 6, where, where is the substitutionary term in verse 6? Okay, there it is, laid on him. The Hebrew term means, literally, the Hebrew term means to land on. I remember years ago reading about a, a church. In fact, I'd like to visit uh, Worden, Germany. I don't even know where Worden, Germany is. You should look it up. Because there's a church there. I think it might be a Catholic church. But uh, there's a church there that has a stone uh, statue of a lamb on its, on its roof in honor of the Lamb. Not the Lamb of God, in honor of the Lamb. True story. Uh, many years ago, a worker was working on the roof, and he slipped and fell, and there were stones, huge stones, all around the courtyard, and between two huge stones was a lamb that was grazing. The worker fell right on top of the lamb, killed the lamb flat out, but he lived. He landed on the lamb. And so they put a, a statue up there in honor of the lamb. Pretty funny. Well, in that sense, our sin lands on Jesus, right? And that's uh, the picture here. Uh, where's the substitutionary term in verse 8? Verse 
Got to get to the end. There you go. Stricken. Powerful word for the transgression of my people. There's that substitutionary. This is all over the place. Uh, verse 10. I'll read it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Uh, he, was, uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, the will of the Lord shall prosper in the land. So it was, his soul was made an offering for guilt. In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And there it is, he shall what? He'll bear their iniquities. All these are substitutionary terms. And finally, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. There you go. There's all those. There's, by the way, eight times in this passage, Jesus is referred to as dealing with our inner needs. And that's our greatest need, right? So he came as a substitute. And he came as a, he also came as a, uh, as a satisfier. And we alluded to that at the very end. How many of you are in the first service this morning? Raise your hand. Okay. So you guys got to hear Chuck give his own testimony, right? You know, he didn't know he was going to do that. I took my notes. I said, Chuck's right behind me. I took my notes. I, I handed him to Chuck. I said, this is where I'm finishing. You finish it for me. I handed it to him. And he did. He knew the story better than I did. What a great story, huh? talking to his father-in-law, witnessing to his father-in-law, going through this passage, looking at the fact that, that, again, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he, that's the father, shall see his son and be satisfied. That's where we get the doctrine of propitiation. And so Chuck's talking to his father-in-law, and he says, Dad, the only person the father was ever satisfied with was his son. And his, what his son did was satisfying to the father. And if you'll trust, you know, if you'll trust the son, God will be satisfied with you. And Chuck said, you know, I was thinking, I'm just going to go to something else. I'm driving down the road, and all of a sudden, I just, he just said, he just blurted out loudly. Lord, what Chuck said. I just thought that was great. I, I want Jesus to be my sin bearer. And that's what he trusted him. When he recognized the satisfaction that he brought to the Father. You know, to a thirsty man, only a drink will satisfy, right? And Jesus said as much to the woman at the well, right? You know, everybody who drinks from this well is going to get thirsty again. But the one who drinks the water I give him will never thirst. To a hungry man, only a meal will satisfy, right? And Jesus said... I am the bread of life. I am your sustenance. But to a holy God, only the death and resurrection of his son Jesus would satisfy. And that's why 1 John 2, 2 says that, that he is the, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is, you know, he is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction to God for our sins. 
And it was his will. Look at verse 10 again, if you will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Does anybody have some other translation than the ESV? What's it say? It pleased. In fact, that is what the Hebrew word means. It pleased the Lord. How did it please God to crush his own son? How could that possibly be? In fact, the, the Hebrew word means to delight it. it delight it? You've got to be kidding me. And that's not like God was going, oh, this is such a great time. But remember, we are talking about the Alpha and the Omega. He, 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 it could please him because he knew the outcome. Not just the resurrection of his son, but the salvation of the people of God chosen from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Amen? And the resurrection is even referred to. we got to get that in there. It's, at the, it's really alluded to at the end of verse 10. I read it, but there it is again. Uh, when he sees, he, well, uh, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. This is after he's been talking about being crushed, pierced, killed. But he's going to prolong his days. And you have there a very powerful allusion to the resurrection. Charles Spurgeon said this, it was as if hell were placed in his cup and that he seized it with one mighty drought of love. He drank damnation dry. That's powerful stuff. Got a little bone to pick here, if I may. Because the very first verse, you know, I kept going back to who has believed what he has heard from us. Amidst all of the details of Jesus' life and death that this chapter reveals, the crux is this question. Who, are you going to believe this? And what are you going to believe? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And by the way, the Apostle Paul alludes to, alludes to this in Romans chapter 10. Remember in Romans 10, Paul famously says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Yeah, but how are they going to call upon him if they haven't heard him? How are they going to hear about him? You know, unless there's a preacher. How are they going to preach? Unless somebody's what? Sent. Therefore, how beautiful are the feet, he quotes Isaiah again, of those who preach the gospel of peace, bring glad tidings of good things, right? I'm going to be honest with you. My greatest concern these days has not been whether or not the unbeliever believes the gospel, but whether the believer believes it. Uh, I'm proud of my wife. I won't tell what happened here, but there was uh, someone close to us uh, that spoke at an event uh, uh, not long ago. And uh, my wife, because we're close to this individual, went to the event. It was a gospel kind of event, a Christian event. And uh, it was a community event. So many of those who were there were lost people. And this individual gave a great story was very raw, very real, told their story of their situation in life and how the Lord had brought them out and sprinkled it with a few passages of Scripture very special to them. And when my wife got back home that night, I said, how did it go, honey? And she said, uh, you could just see, I could just feel the thud in her heart. I said, well, what was wrong? She goes, well, 
she never even came close to giving the gospel. And in another situation, not all that long ago, a friend of mine, getting the church started, great guy, great intentions, uh, spoke to a group of people that they're kind of gathering together. And I've got several friends around uh, the country that are doing things like this. And, but this individual, I talked about the gospel for 45 minutes, and this was with a community of people, many of which didn't know the Lord, and he never gave the gospel. A good friend of mine who was on the, his advisory actually had the, uh, the guts to call him up and, the right, and say the right thing. Hey, you know, that was really, you talked a lot about the gospel, but you never gave the gospel. So that's what I mean when I say one of my, my biggest pet peeves is not whether the unbeliever believes, but whether you believe it. Do you believe the gospel? Do you know the gospel? If I asked you what the gospel was, what would you say? I know what some of you would say. You'd say, well, it's the Bible. It's not the Bible. I'm going preachy here. Sit back here a little bit. I've heard people say, well, it's the Bible. That's not the gospel for crying out loud. It's in there. And I've heard, I once asked the church family, I think I asked this church family this on a prayer meeting 100 years ago. I got all kinds of answers other than the right ones. If you don't know what the gospel is, you're not going to be able to give it. It's very compactly given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, first four verses. And even lays it. Just go there real quick, will you please? Because we got a little time here. 1 Corinthians 15, please. I just want you to see it. I put it up, but I didn't tell Doug to do it, so I'll just go, just go there. And I want you to see this. Just real quickly, I want to read through this. Now it says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the, say it. The gospel. What does the gospel mean? Good news. And by the way, I heard somebody say, you can sum up the gospel in five words. Christ died for our sins. That ain't the gospel. Nobody questioned whether Jesus died. He had to die. But the good news is that he rose, right? And he tells us that. Again, so look, I, I, I want to remind you of the gospel. I preached to you, so it had to be preached, which you received, has to be received, and in which you stand. That's what happens when you place your faith in Jesus. You stand upright spiritually, and by, by which you are being saved. That's what it does, right? And yet, with all of that, we haven't heard what the gospel is. Have you noticed? So far, so cool, not the gospel. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you, you know, believed in vain, that would be a false profession, of course, and thank you. Here's the gospel. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first important, what I also received. I, all I'm doing is giving out what I received. That's all you're doing. But we still haven't got to the gospel. Can you give me the gospel? Would you know how to give the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? If you don't, here it is. Memorize it. Here's what it says. Christ died for our sins. So far, so good. In accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Christ died, was buried to, you know, to con affirm, confirm that he died, and he rose again. 
And we have to receive this. We have to believe this. We have to receive this ourselves. That's the gospel. That's what you share with somebody. Are you able to do that? My biggest pet peeve is not whether unbelievers believe, it's whether believers believe this. It's not enough to say, hey, you just got to love Jesus. What? You got to give them the gospel. I've heard too many presentations of how to do church, get contentment, get comfort, get real, and even get the gospel without hearing the gospel itself. Ugh. Slick presentations from blind preachers. If you visit Washington, D.C., you might drive across the Arland D. Williams Memorial Bridge, formerly the 14th Street Bridge, and think nothing of it. In January of 1982, about eight months before I became a Christian, I had not yet grasped the concept of substitution. But God was preparing me to grasp it on January 13th. I, I watched it. I watched it happen just minutes after it did because it was a newsflash. Air Florida Flight 90 with, with 84 people took off and in a, in a blizzardy day, very cold, and just lost power and went straight down, clipped the bridge, the 14th Street Bridge, went right into the icy Potomac. 78 people died, either on impact or drowned. Six survived the initial impact. Five of them lived, all but the man who for so long was simply known as the man in the water. I watched it. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't even a Christian. It, people were all around. He kept grabbing the cable as the helicopter. I think we have a picture. He kept grabbing the cable. That's him. And handing it to the next person. And handing it to the next person. And handing it to the next person. And when the helicopter finally came back for Arlen D. Williams, this banker, he'd slipped under the ice and died with the rest of them. A lot of people drive across the Arlen D. Williams Memorial Bridge and think nothing of it many years later. A lot of you... You drive by, you come into the church, you drive by crosses, you drive by graveyards, and you think nothing of it. Think again. The Arlen D. Williams Memorial Bridge, the 14th Street Bridge, was changed to that in memory of his valor. The cross is the memory of Jesus' valor, the empty tomb, the reminder of his victory. And that's the gospel. And don't us forget it. Amen? God, thanks for our time together tonight. Just looking at this passage once again, I pray we would fall in love 
with the passion of the Christ and this portrait within the passion and love him more deeply even as we sang our praises this morning and tonight and then live a life that matches our praise. God, help us to not just having received this good news of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, but to give it out this Easter season as never before. And I pray, Lord, you would cement this into our hearts. Bless us as we go from here in Jesus' name. Amen.